Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Third Degree Burn. I am Tim Elliott, and I have two special guests with us, uh, and they're not Brian. We have the founding fathers of Two Two Freaks. We have Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Hey! Hey! <laughs> and then, of course, there's, there's me. Hey. And then we have Brian. Brian. In the back. Yeah. And I'm no Mountain Dew. I'm upset. <laughs> I just, I just yeah. went to... Um... Um, KFC today and had some of their delicious peach Mountain Dew. I don't know oh. if that's in all the KFCs everywhere, but it's like exclusive to KFC. I think it is delicious. Mm. That's the best so that's good with chicken. Made. Yeah, because huh? I, I gotten into a little conversation with Rob Liefeld on one of the Burn Facebook groups about what flavor of Mountain Dew you should serve with different dishes. Like Code Red doesn't go good with fish, so I'm assuming. Peach flavored Mountain Dew goes good with chicken. I think. Well, yeah, but it does. It, it definitely does. I think that's. I think they're going for peach because peach is just a southern, yeah. southern. You know, the, the South. Colonel Sanders from the fried yeah. chicken in the South. But well, um, Georgia's the peach state. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, you know, though, uh, they'll whatever reason ideas. it is, God bless them because it is delicious. I'm glad you like it. I, I, peach is just not one of those things I go out of my way for. And, it's and, not super sweet, which is weird for Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew yeah. is like usually like sucking down diabetes in a, you know, <laughs> just in a straw, and it's like still diabetes. It is. It is. It's just like it's just uh, like putting the straw into Wilford Brimley and just draining <laughs> it. As, as a card-carrying diabetic here, I you know I I got myself limited down to eight ounces of Mountain Dew a day. Those little cans. The little tiny airline cans. cans. Yeah, that's all I can have, you know, and that's how I start my morning off. Or if we're going to record, I'll have one ready so I can pop that pop that uh, tab there just as we get well, started. He, he but, says it's Mountain Dew. We don't really know what it is. Well, I mean, what do you what do you mix with Mountain Dew? I mean, I, you know, I can mix vodka with Mountain Dew. I, I, I work with that's, a guy that's, that's from a, Tennessee. That's called a Dew Driver. Yeah, or he a would screw. Yeah. Mountain so I, I would I would make my screwdrivers with uh with Mountain Dew, and an orange liqueur instead of triple sec. That, that my my brother got me it was real nice stuff. Well, Las Vegas you is a very Pepsi heavy town because mm. Pep, the Pepsi is a Pepsi headquarters right across from where I work, uh, and almost every restaurant here serves Pepsi, not Coke. You can find Coke. It's not like Chicago where you can't find Coke at all. Um, but Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Yeah, I'm sure you can find plenty of Coke in, in Chicago. <laughs> Coca-Cola. Uh, but I, it's possible to find Coca-Cola and Dr. Pepper here. Now, can you get Mexican Coke in Las Vegas? Uh, I believe so. You can get the... But you can't get Coca-Cola. the... Uh, you can't get the Dubliner uh, Dr. Pepper. The what? Dr. Pepper? The Dr. Pepper that's oh, the from, du- from Dublin. They don't make the Dr. Pepper Dublin? They don't do it anymore. Oh, Oh, they shut down that plant, which that's is, I, I mean, I don't drink Dr. Pepper, so it's like, but um, the the Mexican Coke is the only Coke that's made with actual cane sugar. And well, uh, the regular Coke Classic but is all I, that. But I the Pepsi came out with a, a throwback Pepsi that was made with cane mm-hmm. sugar. It was called Pepsi's mm-hmm. Soda Fountain or something like that. Yep. And um, they did the same thing with Mountain Dew. They had a throwback Mountain Dew. Yeah. And I tried it, and it was like drinking a diet drink. It, it had a weird aftertaste. I couldn't do it. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> it's because they use that that hillbilly on the 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 packaging yeah. of it. They used to. That's how they they would have hillbillies at the plant with their feet just in the vats. That <laughs> oh was God! Added that's ingredients. 
Well, uh, let's go ahead and skip past that. Since we're talking about throwbacks. Uh, yeah, uh, throwbacks. <laughs> we're here to talk about Indiana Jones and the further adventures of Indiana Jones. Uh, Marvel Comics was lucky enough to do an Indiana Jones comic book back in, that was what, 1983, right? Uh, 80, and, yeah, 83 oh, yeah, yeah. started, it covered the sale date, I think actually went out in 82. Yeah, October of 82 it covered date. That's right, that's right. Um, you know, as I understand it, uh, when John Byrne saw uh, in, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark in the theater, he went to Jim Shooter and he said, hey, we, we need to do this. We need to do this. And Shooter was just like, nah, I don't think so. I don't think anybody would be interested in it at all. And um, I think Jim Salakrup or someone else had come in and said, hey, this is a great idea. So they went ahead and jumped on it. And per burn it was the worst experience the, okay it, as, as he's quoted here he says one of the most unpleasant experiences of my career and that's saying something uh, the lucasfilm liaison was from another planet and from the very beginning you know this liaison would come in and they would approve the story you know, the plot and then they would approve the pages and then just before they're going to print they would come in and say no no you need to go back and change this or you need to go back and redraw this and it's like they just didn't understand the um, the the process of making comic books and how you have to do everything several months in advance. And uh, and it, it did. And, and just burn just decided after the first one, because he had practically redrawn a lot of the first issue, the first episode uh, issue. And then after everything was done, they wanted to use his third story as the first story. And they were able to convince him. No, no, no. Let's just go with what we have. They finally got that out, and after the first two issues were done, he just said, "I'm done." And Tom DeFalco came in, I think, after that, and but they they were just as bad to Tom DeFalco, and they would call up a week before a book was supposed to go to the printers and tell them crazy stuff like, "We need a different penciler," or or something else along those lines. So it was hell in a handbasket putting out the Indiana Jones series, and yet, how many years did they go with so that? So it was like, so yeah, same as same as Star Wars, though. Sounds like. Pretty much, yeah. I figure it's I, probably the same as Star Wars. Is only or same as Star Trek. Is only you're constrained with the fact that there's films coming out that you can only tell. You can only take yeah. characters a certain way or only tell certain stories because you don't want too much to interfere with the films but, they've got. But Star Trek was also used to like novelizations and stuff. So like, unless you were like, you could get away with doing. You could do a lot of stuff, probably a lot more with Star Trek, I think, than you could with Star Wars, because like Star Wars came right down to like, probably George Lucas was checking all the stories at some point, or at least like thumbing over a synopsis of it at some point. Where Star Trek, they were just like, they probably when a movie was coming out, they would like check it over to make sure anything didn't cross with the movies, and then beyond that. At least as far as like a lot of the books and other Star Trek comics go, it seemed like they were pretty hands off and yeah. letting them go, go as weird as they wanted to. Well, from what that, I've, I've seen in the wiki page, that uh, Lucasfilm considers all these stories as canon. They did before the Disney buyout. Well, I don't right. Know if Disney well, then, does. Then they cut everything out. But right. Yeah, because this would, well, this was the very first expanding Burns. universe story. Yeah, I've always considered Burns' two issues to be part of indie canon, and one of the big reasons for that is, uh, I don't know if you guys remember the Indiana Jones role-playing game or not, but it came with a campaign, and the campaign it came with was an adaptation of this Burns story. They gave it a different name, 
and I cannot remember. I should have dug it out. I have it in a closet here somewhere in the house, but uh, I can't remember if they if they credit John Byrne by name or not. But it is clearly an adaptation of this. And I remember the DM's board um, had multiple pictures on it, and one of the pictures that was on it was of the gold room with the the golden you know what mm-hmm. he thinks are statues yep. on the walls do you remember this chris i do yeah so that that to me just the fact that you know that that they adapted it into an actual campaign for the for the role-playing game to me really spoke volumes of what somebody somewhere thought of you know this first adventure hmm. it was a tsr game too wasn't it i, I think so yeah i thought i, was I, I think it was which company that yeah. did it yeah Wow. The video games yeah, are guys, kind of... That's the one I, I never saw, the, the Indiana Jones game. Oh, my God. That was one of the times Scott and I got the maddest we've ever been at Uncle Randy. Oh, <laughs> we were going to kill that. Oh, we were going to kill him. Kill yeah. him. And the thing is, he had it right. Now, all these years ago, he had it right. He, But we were like... You remember this, Scott. We were at the top of a mountain or whatever. Yeah. Like, at the top of the mountain... And we were going to do like a Temple of Doom and we're trying to figure out how to like, okay, we could slide down on this. And Randy's just goes, I'm going to run and jump off the side of the mountain and roll down the mountain. And we're and and, and I believe you you were probably the the doing the, the you're just like, you can't do that. He's like, I'm running it. And we're like, okay. And like started rolling. And he just like missed every like rolled down to the bottom of the mountain and was fine and we were just like oh i, I hate you came out and attacked you i think there was some way <laughs> something that we had to do to get down to the bottom of the you know some set of circumstances and things that we had to rig up to get to the bottom and randy was just like yeah i'm just gonna roll down shoulder <laughs> bottom like captain kirk and he yeah. did which he completely I did. I, he didn't take it seriously at all. Which <laughs> I look back on it now as we we should have been having more fun like he was doing, but we were trying to be a, be straight, you know, play yeah. it serious. And he was just screwing around. And I remember getting really annoyed. I don't think we played for very. That was the only time I ever dug right. it out. And we had a game was that one time, and he just ruined the experience for us. <laughs> oh, don't don't even get started about like having Uncle Randy in a Trivial Pursuits game. Oh Jesus! <laughs> he did not even try. <laughs> Has anybody ever played the Xbox? I think it's Xbox. Uh, it's not Indiana Jones and the Infernal Machine. It's Indiana Jones and... The Emperor's Tomb? The Emperor's Tomb, yes. Yes, that is a great game. And if you ever go back and listen to... For a time, Chris and I were doing coverage of this series, The Further Adventures of yep. Indiana Jones. Yeah. I don't remember what issue we made it to, but we, we covered quite a bit we of it. Of good ways we, into it. Yeah. yeah, before we... Peter, probably at least the first third of it. Because, um, by the way, somebody had asked how long did it go. It did go for three years, um, but not quite 36 issues. At, at the 29th issue, the, the frequency changed from monthly to bi-monthly, so it gave it a little bit longer lease on life, but it uh, it got canceled at issue 34. So, hmm. um, But anyway, uh, shit, what, what were you talking about? <laughs> oh, the game. Video um, game, yeah. yeah. If you ever go back and listen to those episodes, a lot of the music that I used uh, to underscore those episodes comes from um, Emperor's Tomb, that game, because it has a great score. It it was a good game up to a point. Um, 
I myself never finished it because it was one of those games where you had to do like a crazy amount of stuff before it would hit its own save game. Like you couldn't mm-hmm. save the game yourself. There were set save games after accomplishing certain things. Well, there's this one level way towards the end of the game where you start in a pit and the the pit starts to fill itself in kind of like Jenga. So you had to learn the pattern so that you weren't skewered by these these like shafts of wood that would come across the shaft so that you could climb out. So that was the first thing you got. If you managed to live through that, then the next thing was you had to use the bullwhip kind of like Spider-Man swinging through the city. You had to use the bullwhip like that to swing past a bunch of different obstacles. If you survive that, then there was this big like electrified maze with these statue things that shot electricity out of their eyes. So even if you learn the pattern of where to step on the floor to not get electrocuted by the floor, the statues could still zap you. And I couldn't ever get past it. And every time you would die, you started all the way back in the pit again. Yeah. And it just got to a point where it was like, this is a lesson in frustration and I don't need this shit. So I, I stopped playing it. But other than that, it, it must really have been testing game. your legendary patience, I'm sure. Yeah, well, yes, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you remember those games like Star Trek, the 25th anniversary game, and they did the Indiana Jones games the same way. They did the, the Last Crusade and I think Fate of Atlantis. Right, but right. But the Last yeah. Crusade game, when you got down into the tunnels under Venice, it was impossible because there's a map somewhere out there I think you can find. But I got so frustrated with with that, getting in those tunnels, that I just I put that in the game and I've never gone back to it. Well, I had to get my nephew because I, I don't know if it's the level you're talking about, Scott, but there is a level where it's towards the end and you have to – it's all timing. And you're jumping because there's pits in front of you and there's something <laughs> chasing you. And I can't – yeah. I could not for the life of me, so I had to get my – my nephew who it's like was, the clakers yeah go quest. get a seven-year-old i did i like, got my 12 year old nephew and he, to fix it yeah <laughs> and he gets over it the first time you know just to get me past that so i could finish the game well, uh, i went through that recently with jedi fallen order where i had some things <laughs> i just couldn't get done and i called my 14 year old son in okay see if you can get me past this <laughs> well the, you fun. know jedi fallen order i never played that but I sat down and watched the playthrough of it, and it was pretty good. <laughs> it is. It, it had is. a bad story to I it. I really enjoyed it. Well, the cool well, thing about is. the Indiana Jones is when – it's just spoilers for a game, and this game's probably 20 years old. When yeah. you get to the end, there's a cutscene where he's you know, he solved everything and van- vanquished everything. He then puts on a white tuxedo top, and, he, and it leads right into the beginning of Temple of Doom. So he's going to meet uh, – his little Asian buddy with the Choji, uh, oh, yeah. and that's how yeah. it's so that his that adventure ends with his new adventure starting. It's kind of I thought it was kind of cool. That was Emperor's Tomb. Yeah. Oh, I did not realize that. Okay, that's kind of cool. Now it makes me want to go back and revisit that game <laughs> at some point. Um, yeah, his his history in video games is is very checkered because. You know, of course, the first one was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I mean, Legend I went through a dozen trollers, you know, mass, you know, finally beating that game. Um, you know, and then there was the Temple of Doom arcade game, which is simultaneously one of the f- most fun and most frustrating video games that ever was in the arcade. Yep. Um, 
But the one I, that always really stuck out in my memory as, as being just a fantastic game was uh, Infernal Machine. I, I loved that game, and it's such a shame that they never patched it to work on modern systems because there was a, a point that they crossed where um, Microsoft hit one of their upgrades. I forget which one it was. Uh, Windows, such and such, like XP or something, where suddenly... Um, that game wouldn't work anymore. That was There's that a, step from Windows XP to ME. Something like that, yeah. yeah. It, and it's a sound that file thing. that when, yeah. when it accesses this certain sound file, it'll crash the game every time. And somebody was supposed to go in and patch it. Like, this was, you know, years ago, and, and they just never bothered to do it. So, to the best of my knowledge, that game still does not work on any modern system, which is a damn shame because that was a really, really good game. So now I want to go and find that. I never but played I that one. I think I my mother watch played it on um, YouTube. I'm sure. I've never personally played uh, Staff of Kings, but that one also has a really good soundtrack to it. I, I can't remember who the composer was, but he did kind of like a a riff similar to if you've ever heard the soundtrack to the Star Wars movie that wasn't a movie, the um, Shadows of the Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the soundtrack that that was made for that 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 sounds very John Williams like. Yes, a very similar thing was done with the soundtrack to Indiana Jones and the Staff of Kings. At least I think that was the name of that game. It was a Wii game, and right. my youngest boy had it, and he he rather liked it. Although he said it was really frustrating to play it on the Wii. Um, but at some point I, I acquired the soundtrack to that and it's, it's actually really good because it's, you can tell it's riffing on Williams without just blatantly ripping him yeah. off. Have you played the I Lego, the Lego version of Indiana Jones or Raiders? I, yeah, I haven't, but my kids did. So I kind of watched them as they played it and it, it looked like that was it's a, a lot, lot of fun. Games. Yeah. Lego games are, are a blast. Yeah. yeah. I, I got stuck in the, in the galley in, in, in Cairo. And I hadn't gone back, and then my son took down the PS3 to put the PS4 up. But I've got it built back up here, so I'm going to have to give that one another swing. I, I, I went all the way back, and I played the Atari, um, the Atari version of Indiana Jones Raiders: Lost Ark there, and uh, was was happy to say I solved that one. Isn't that basically Pitfall? Uh, it's it no <laughs> no Pitfall was incredibly easy compared to Raiders: Lost yeah. Ark. Raiders: Lost Ark was a lot more like ET. Yes, I was going to say Pitfall's like a linear line that <clears throat> you're going and Raiders is sometimes <clears throat> you're looking for like little points on the screen that you have to whip and stuff and yeah. you're sort of wandering around and just so looking. You have to jump sequence. off the cliff to get into the, yeah, the map that, room. That's yeah. what I was, was going to say. Insane. When you had to parachute into the map room, I can remember lots and lots and lots of instances of going... Yeah. <laughs> you can whip the yep. parachute and fall to your death every time, you know. So yeah, that game was a lesson in frustration. But when you I finished it, you you had better the than satisfaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same same designer too, wasn't it? Oh, was it? It seems like it, doesn't yeah. it? It sure seems like it. Where you would fall into those weird little vagina pits in the ground and stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well. All this is pretty cool, but I think we should go ahead and get back and, and start talking about the book. Now, um, again, this was the beginning after the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark series, which, uh, if I remember right, that was 
John Basima on issues one and three and Walt Simonson on issue two, right? Uh, when, I was I was just looking at that a second ago here on Mike's Amazing World. And hang on, I don't have it in front of me again. But if I remember properly, what I saw was that Simonson wrote. Hang on here, I'm looking at. Oh yeah, like, that's right. Yeah, Simonson wrote all three issues, and then again, this is according to Mike's Amazing World. I don't have the issues in front of me. It looks like the art team on all three issues was John Buscema inked by Klaus Jansen. Jansen, yeah, I know Jansen. that for sure. Yeah, yeah I can see the Klaus Jansen art in my head now when I picture yeah. pick shots of it. <laughs> yeah. That, but, I mean, I, I really enjoyed that when they did. Of course, that was back in the day when that was all you had. Right. Until it came out on the VCR, so. All yeah, right. Simonson so, did the covers to two and three, but he did not uh, do any of the interior art on those. I wonder why that was, but still. I think that, you know, that's something that John Basima probably wanted to do since it wasn't the superhero book. He seemed to. Would Simonson's artwork on that been after he did his Star Wars stint or before? Um, Probably concurrently. I can look that up real quick here, but I'm thinking it was probably concurrent with his... I right around the same time, yeah. 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 That, that, that makes sense. Anyway, I think I'll go ahead and get the... You can interrupt with that information anytime. I'm going to go ahead and get the, the Mike's Amazing World information out of the way. Uh, this, of course, was Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, number one, published by Marvel, uh, cover date of January 1983, with an on-sale date of October 5th, 1982. It had a cover price of 60 cents, page count of 32, and, um, you know, it's funny because it didn't have a title for the story or the first chapter, even though it had four chapters. It just was like, you know, basically, you turn the first page, it's chapter one. Uh, of course, writer penciler it uh, John, Mike's Amazing World says is John Byrne. Now, he did script and layout, and it was tight layouts on the first issue, and then just straight layouts on the second one. So, uh, loose layout would be like stick figures, and the tight layouts would be you know who you can tell definitely who each character is. So most of what you're going to see in the art is really mostly Terry Austin. And I'd wondered about that for years, and I found that um, that little distinction made by Byrne, um, just that he, you know, did tight layouts. Uh, yeah, tight breakdowns of the first issue, less on the second. Um, and he goes, I've done layouts in other projects, some issues of action, for instance. You can usually tell in the past 25 years or so, anchors seem to have forgotten what breakdowns and layouts are and often ink just what's on the page. There have been times I've seen finished product and been tempted to re-voucher the job as full pencils, since that is clearly how it was treated. I find that interesting. Um, so, again, he was writer-penciler, anchors Terry Austin. I really should say finish, finished art by Terry Austin. Letterer is Joseph Rosen, colorist Bob Sharon, editor Louise Simonson, or Louise Jones. Um, the story itself has 22 pages. Uh, for January of 1983, he also worked on Fantastic Four number 250, uh, titled X Factor. This was the second part of the Gladiator Scrolls storyline um, and official handbook of the Marvel Universe number one, the first series of Ohatmu, not the deluxe series, uh, Abomination to Avengers. He had, I think, two images that he'd drawn in that particular one. Or actually, he did um, Alpha Flight, which was the faces, 
and the Avengers that was also just the faces. But some of his art was used in samplings of uh, what what the characters did. They didn't do that as much in the first Ohatmu series like they did in the second one. When they came out with the deluxe series later, they seemed to like use any burn art they could get to throw in there. And that's all on Mark Grunewald, who's editing the series. Um, anyway, so I've got the synopsis here. Scott, did you want to break in with something? No, that's something we can discuss afterwards. That I just sent you an image, but that's that's something else we can talk about afterwards. All right, all right. Um, I I had thought about reading the entire synopsis here in a Tom Kane voice, but I just don't think I could keep up the 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 energy because <laughs> it'd be crazy. But I'll 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 start it off like this. <clears throat> in the last episode of the Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, even though there wasn't the last episode. Marcus had opened Indy's door to a frightful surprise. Here we find Dr. Jones is simply helping a student with their extra credit, courtesy of his handy whip. In one swift motion, Jones is able to remove a cigarette from the student's mouth with a single loud snap. Once Marcus regains his composure, he brings Dr. Jones to meet to a meeting with a former student, Charles Dunn. Paraphrasing Jones, he was headstrong, irresponsible, undisciplined, and the best student he ever had. Dunn had come to see Indy about the icons of Akamemum. I don't know how that's pronounced. I hope that's right. A legend about several large golden statues. Dunn and his sister Edith had apparently learned the location of the icons. Just as the former student was about to elaborate on what he and his sister found, he cries out and goes limp, slumping down on the table, a knife sticking out of his dead body from the open window behind him. In the aftermath of Dunn's murder, Indy discovers that he had a map to the icon's location and an address to Dunn's sister Edith, who was in the African nation of Liberia. Indy grabs his hat, gun, and a flight, and he's on his way. Chapter 2, Interested Parties After nearly 60 hours traveling by plane and steamer boat, Indy arrives in the Liberian city of Krakambo and is quickly met by Edith Dunn. They get back to her hotel room to find it's been ransacked, and then she and Indy are suddenly attacked by masked locals with knives. Indy takes on the attackers and is fighting several at once when Edith gets thrown out the window. Indy knocks out each of his attackers only to see Edith getting carried off in the distance. Not wanting to lose sight of his quarry, Indy quickly uses his whip to swing down the second story window down to a fruit cart out on the street. While the streets of Krikambo are a veritable maze, Indy is able to keep up with Edith and her assailant. It all seems too easy until Indy realizes too late it's a trap. He follows them into a back alley only to find a dead end and a gate closing behind him, trapping him. Just then, door opens up underneath, and Indy falls down into the tunnels below. Indy finds his way through the tunnels, coming up to a heavy wooden door. He forces his way through, only to come into a large chamber full of gold, a throne, and a large man sitting on the throne. Edith held it by his side by a servant. Chapter 3, Dealing in the Dark The man on the throne introduces himself as Solomon Black, and tells Indy that he will now be a part of the search for the icons. And while Indy may have his gun, Solomon was able to give him an offer he could not refuse if he wanted to keep Edith alive. The next morning, Indy, Edith, Solomon Black, and his men are on a Czechoslovakian ship that made a course for an island that Edith had mapped out, an island that does not appear on regular maps. When they arrive, they see many ships have wrecked on the shore near the island. So Indy and Edith are sent to the island in a small boat accompanied by a few of Black's lackeys. After Indy gets some of the crew ashore and gets past some deadly traps left there, they find a city in the valley. Chapter 4, The Icons of Akamemon. 
The town is a in the valley is small and cramped and surrounds a tower in the middle of the in the middle that Indy estimates to be 15 stories tall. They make it to the tower without meeting anyone, as if the town were completely empty. Once inside the tower, they see the icons up on the wall, seven golden statues of men and women, bound and apparently in horrible agony. Indy pulls one of the statues from the wall, only for it to break and a few bones to fall out of the open piece. Just as Indy realizes these are not statues, he's hit from behind and knocked out. When he comes to, he and Edith are suspended on a large chain in the same chamber now filled with several elderly natives dressed in ceremonial garb. They open up the altar beneath Indy and Edith to reveal molten, bubbling, boiling gold. The natives then start to lower Indy and the soon-to-be-late Dr. Dunn into the gold in an attempt to make more gold statues. Will Indy escape? Will he acquire the icons? Will he sleep with Edith when, if they get out of this? And will they thwart the greed and guile of Solomon Black? All to be answered in issue two of the further adventures of Indiana Jones. The end. <laughs> Is this the end Good. of Bugs Bunny? <laughs> Tune in next week. <laughs> yes, that is next week. Uh, I found, you know, I just after when I read this, I found that it really had that flavor of Indiana Jones. And so I was Hell so yeah. excited to see where this was going to go. And of course, back then as a kid, you know, I, I got this at the at the Utotem, which was a, the local convenience store. And it was one of those that I couldn't help but read on the way home from the store, just walking it's like a half a mile from the Utotem to my house. And I just read it and I just felt like it was it, it felt like the movie. I could hear the music in the background and, and I could hear Harrison Ford's voice when he was talking. That's what John Byrne. He's what? he's John Byrne is like very good at if it's a character he's interested in getting them pitch perfect you know i mean i'm more used to it from his star trek stuff to to where he you know he knows the characters enough so that their dialogue flows naturally this like he's indiana like the when, when i was just reading this again i'm like oh man what a this kind of a jerky intro he's like got like this like 19 year old college student and he's like bumping her up to an a plus but meanwhile he could completely like wreck her face forever and like loses tenure and stuff i'm like but that's about the my only quibble with it is maybe this should have been like more of temple of doom era maybe younger brasher and pre-marion pre-second run at marion indiana jones but but he plays him off as being iris you know kind of irresponsible and not you know just kind of in in a gray area, which is where Indiana Jones is. But but this is kind of actually at, interesting because basically he's giving them a pop instead of them giving him a pop. You know, which is how it would have been before Marion. Yeah, I, so I, maybe he's got to discourage this I'm a, somehow. <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with Chris here that I this is the part that I thought was really out of character. I thought he yeah. the Indiana Jones from the films would not do this. One, he's putting her in danger. And Marcus only seems to be worried about Indy. You could lose your job, not whether she could lose an eye or be horribly scarred or be killed or whatever. All he's worried about is Indy, you know, taking risk. And that's that to me felt a little heavy handed of Indy saying, well, you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's you know, you have to take risks in life. See, I could see a character saying, well, in the it's 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 true to its period. You know, I could see someone in a pulp novel or in yeah. a. Uh, 
in a ser- movie serial saying something like that and and us watching it now going like oh geez <laughs> yeah yeah i'll agree <laughs> oh, there sketchy. but you know that is i mean you know i mean people are just starting to be like be like did you know you know they're, they're they were like a lot of people watch raiders of the lost ark and they're like wait a minute did did Indiana Jones date the underage daughter of his teacher? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, he did. The one thing I think that it's really important to remember, and this happened, you know, success can often be one of the worst things to happen to a great character because mm-hmm. a lot of times what will happen is that you'll have a character that is very edgy, maybe a little dark, maybe a little like anti-hero-ish in, in a lot of their actions but because they become popular or they become pop icons, they start to get watered down. And you know, yes. we've seen this happen with Indy, with uh, Han Solo, you know, which he also, you know, Harrison Ford also played with, uh, with Rambo, you know, with a lot of characters to where they start out with a certain edge to them, but great. then that edge is quickly blunted because they become so popular. Rambo is a great example. Cause he went like, I mean the first, first blood movie is like a gritty, yeah. like seventies, yeah. like, you know, ramp, you know, and then, and then to move to by the, the third, by the second movie, but by the third movie, he's full cartoon. He's, character. he's a cartoon. Yeah. Exactly. And now Indiana Jones doesn't have it quite that bad, but I think it's uh, the reason I bring that up is you have to remember. It's very important to remember that the only thing that Burns got to go on is the movie and possibly a novelization that was out there. That's it. That's all he's got to work with. There was no Temple of Doom yet or any of the other films. And if you look at each subsequent film each subsequent film kind of waters him down a little more and a little more and a little more at, at, at least the point the, that by the time what's that at least with the films like the characters actually physically getting older <laughs> so it's right like, but i don't okay. i don't just mean that i mean his his edge it gets blunted a little more and a little more in each film to a point oh, that yeah. by the time you get to um uh the last uh, crystal skull um, I think it was uh, what's his name Plinkett that points out he only actually kills one person in that right. entire movie. Whereas in well, Raiders of the Lost Ark, he's murdering people. He's a murder- right. yeah. murdering murder people. Machine. He's a yeah. ser- he's a serial killer so, that just leaves a trail of death behind him. But yeah, like I remember seeing Raiders for the first time as a kid. My mom's like, Gene Shalit said this is a good movie. Come on, kids, we're all going to it. And it was just like. And it's and it's such a charming movie that even my mom didn't notice. I noticed how insanely, you know, Indiana Jones, just like if somebody got in his way, he just killed him. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. my father was one that pointed out to me in the the afternoon that I brought the book home. When my father got home from work, I said, Dad, you got to read this. And so he reads it. And so I was asking him about the whip thing. And he says, did you notice that Marion's not in the book? And I said, well, yeah, but he does remember her at one point. And he goes, yeah, but don't you think maybe, you know, she must have dumped him or something. And so he's kind of self-destructive. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I'm like, yeah, that that made sense back, you know, to me back then. But I was sitting there thinking maybe now nah, this was, you know, this is like Marion not necessarily broke up with him. But th- this is he's got all those female students that are just like fawning over him and if you read the raiders novelization that uh, in the original script the student that had love you in her eyelids actually was at his home when marcus came to see him later that evening 
<laughs> oh yeah. Totally. Well, he's totally. and, and that's, so that's how it would have been. Uh, somebody like Indiana Jones would have been in that time period. And well, he's he's a little he's a little Bond like. I mean, think about when this yeah, came out. Yeah. That well, he that's has why, to make that's why you never again. worried about who Bond was with in the last one. Right, because he has to get reset. <laughs> he has to get reset at the at the, yeah. at the film. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah, I was going to bring up the same thing, is that although we will eventually see Marion in the series, and I think that was to appease the readers that kept saying, where's Marion, where's Marion, where's Marion? When this started out, and all he does is kind of remember her, but, you know, that's it. There's no, you know, they're clearly not together anymore. And he doesn't pine over anything like that. I was perfectly fine with that as a kid because it does lend that bond type mystique to him that he's not a one woman guy. You know, just because they reunited in the last movie doesn't mean that they're going to be together in every single adventure after that right. point. Well, part of the, the charm it, it, of the guy. Even the and first my point here, though, is that yeah. is that again, Byrne only did the first two issues, but he had planned to do the the ongoing series, right? And it was only because of his frustration of what had happened. He'd already had multiple plots already laid out. And I think there was going right. to be a Marion subplot. And I think this ties into it. Well, I think the first well, that film was, is, that is, ties in nicely to the image that I sent you. Um, so this image actually comes from something called, hang on, let me look it up again real quick here. I just have it. Oh, yeah. It's uh it's called movie Marvel movie spotlight. Number one, as far as I know, there was only ever one issue. And it was a reprinting of all three issues of the Raiders adaptation in one book. Um, it sold for a dollar twenty-five, and it came out in November of 1982. And on the inside back cover is this image. It, it just says Raiders the Sentinel, and it's a, a great shot. It's by Byrne and Austin. And it's Burr, it's a, excuse me, Indy rather, um, kneeling down, looking at like an icon or something in this temple. And then there's this weird, like sentinel thing behind him with a giant sword about to lop his head off. And I've often wondered about this image and I'm pretty sure it's probably something that, uh, you know, that he was working on for subsequent issues, you know, subsequent storylines that mm -hmm. just never, you know, because he quit the book, it just never happened. But, you know, Marvel is famous for having, you know, drawerfuls of stories that just got shelved at the, some point and they would often wind up in like Marvel fanfare or something. I can't help but wonder, is there actually some more burn Indiana Jones material out there somewhere that has still not ever seen the light of day? Yeah. I bet you there's at least like character studies and, you know, Probably stuff rough, like rough that. pencils or maybe some yeah or at yeah. least his notes to uh yeah I, I mean i think they to your point scott about him getting blunted i think and this is something that's always kind of confused me about the beginning of temple that they i think they tried to paint him more as a kind of a, a hardened adventurer in that because he's you know we're coming in at the end of it like again like a bond film we're coming in at a cold open we're coming in at the end of an adventure He's got. He's found these remains of Nurhaji, and he's trading them uh, to is that Lao Pei uh, for this diamond. Well, we've established in the first film that he care, cares about, and in the second, third film too, he cares about stuff belonging in the museum. You know, he thinks this. He's not in it for fame and fortune. He needs. He thinks these things are important. They're artifacts. They belong in the museum. 
So why, if he's found this remains, why is he? What's the diamond for? Is that for him to fund further ex, uh, adventures for himself, so he can find other artifacts, or is he just doing it for the money? So I don't know if that that. Well, in me, Temple, he's doing it for the money. He's talking about for. He keeps saying fortune and glory, fortune and glory. He keeps talking about right, and that's so that, if that's what that was for. But by the third film, you know, he's so adamant about that cross of Cortez being belonging in a museum. Uh, of course, you know, overlooking the fact that you're robbing probably Native right. Native it's, Americans. It's where, like in its place where it's been its entire existence. With, yeah. With so you're, people, you're, yeah, you're, you're taking. Descendants of the people who made it. Yeah. yeah you're taking somebody else's property <laughs> but, and putting them in, in your museum. But um, uh, so, I mean, I think that's. Uh, I think that to your point, Scott, that he is. I think that's going to happen with any character that if you're going to start to like a character, you have to soften him a little bit because you can't, we can't, you know, we can't, you know, we can't follow a guy that just callously murders people left and right. You know, you have to make him a right. little more, um, uh, a little more sympathetic, a little, you know, more of a, I don't know how many John Wick movies are there now. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's, I think that's almost a reaction to, uh, you know, stuff. It's, it's like, it's like if you're, if you want to yeah, get warm and fuzzy over the, Punisher, and over the Punisher, you know, because he's out there slaughtering people. Um, one of the one of the reasons I really like this story and one of the reasons I, I think it really works well is that this is a, uh, you know, I'm not sure what the term would be. I'm tempted to say like pure version of Indiana Jones, but it, it's one that's much closer to his original incarnation in Raiders. He's got the, the rougher edge. He's got more yep. bite to him than he would eventually kind of water down to. And that's one of the things I like about it. So I, I see both sides of the argument because, you know, we were talking about, you know, him endangering his student in the beginning with, you know, the whip practice. And that's one of those things that's never quite set well with me either that he would be so reckless as to do that, especially, you know, there in the school, you know, in the classroom. But over the years, I've come to kind of like this sequence a little bit. It I, shows I recklessness, but it also shows his cocky confidence that I don't think he ever really thought that she was, uh, you know, at, at risk or whatever. But even if she was, he was willing to accept that risk because, you know, without it, what, you know, as he says, what's the point? But I, and so I, I like that. It, it shows, you know, some some nice insight into his character. But it also I think this is him trading grades. I mean, there's not any difference between this and if she, you know, went to bed with him for an A plus. There's really no He's difference. Well, right. Yeah. And, and like, let's, let's like, if I was in a room drinking with Indy, I wouldn't I wouldn't ask him about if that ever happened because I don't want to know. Because it probably did. <laughs> right. Is that a scroll on that as a bookend there on the far left shelf? I thought it looked like a transformer. A, a what? A transformer. It looks oh. kind of like the head of a transformer. Uh, what do you guys think about him not right quite being on model here? Marcus doesn't really look like Marcus. Indy, I don't think he looks like Harrison Ford, really. Uh, obviously, there's a. There's one image in the second issue that's like almost a full face shot that really makes me feel like Harrison Ford. But for the most most part, it's just a, uh, a Ken doll uh, version of Indiana Yeah, and Jones. we know Byrne, and we've and talked about this. Byrne doesn't like, doesn't like to draw yeah. likenesses, yeah. 
Well, you're, you're I, just be using I, I imagine also that they probably didn't have the likeness rights, more than likely. That's so true. that's probably and, why they don't look exactly like them. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's and like, 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 like the when board he did game Dr. McCoy. Had, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chris. Like the board game had that. I and I also had a had a non Harrison Ford portrayal of Indy too. I I think like it's a good idea not to do the Harrison Ford because if the if the comic goes on like doing a good likeness in different you know without just copying pictures of a of an actor is something that only a few artists seem to be able to get right to make work so it's better to just come up with a sort of generalized indiana jones character and uh, i mean they sort of did it with star wars too although sometimes sometimes some when they would get an artist who could do more character stuff they would hit it more closely but it just seems like a better idea to get uh, a just sort of general idea you know a general idea of indiana jones and you know hey the comic sort of exists like a pulp novel you know they are they are an adaptation of indiana jones just like a movie is right you know you could someday make a documentary on the real indiana you know this was yeah. the real indiana jones that they based the movies on if you wanted to do a meta version of it or whatever but it, yeah, he I, looks, I, to me, he looks a hell of a lot better than like Howard Chaykin's version. You know, you yes, mentioned yeah, the, the game yes. that was out there. He looked like the Marlboro Man. He didn't look like. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think that I think that was part of like production art for the movie that it was. Yeah, like, oh yeah, he was the storyboard. even have been. Yeah, yeah. So, he, yeah. that was just you know that was just hero guy he was drawing. So, yeah, yeah. Well, like, how was how would you rate the, this versus Star Wars Han Solo? as far as a likeness goes because i mean it depends on who's doing <laughs> yeah 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 it really does yeah uh, i mean because there's 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 you know even in this first issue there's still a couple instances where it looks close enough to where yeah you know if they didn't have the rights burn was still pushing the edge because as... i'm looking specifically um oh, as a kid yeah. i was like Here. on board i was totally on board with it it was it was close enough. It looked like the John Byrne version of, and even though, like, like, say, and Terry Austin did, you know, most of the heavy work on the art in this. I yeah. think they're kind of like Lennon and McCartney, to where it doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, they're sort yeah. of finishing each other's sentences. Because, yeah, there's just there's just a thing that you know that you can tell when the two of them work together. And this, like, when this came out. This was just like even more detailed than like a lot of like some of the like Fantastic Four Burn was doing like a lot of really detailed stuff for that, too. And this was just I remember as a kid being just like this is, you know, several levels. I remember after the second issue and it wasn't John Byrne, I was like, okay, there's no okay, They just could not maintain that level of quality. And John Byrne was doing a million things these days. And it was just like, okay. Yeah, it was too much to to ask for this level of quality to be maintained art wise. But, at but this I time, think the I writing mean, other was still than George Perez. There was nobody else doing this level of detail no, in, right. in regular monthly comics. Right, you know? there was just nothing as beautiful as this out there. It really stood out on the stands. And, and, and any this, this one was like typical of that, but even looked like it had even more work put into it. You know, yeah. and. Now looking at the I'm look I'm I'm going through this with the black and white version of it, and uh, 
you know, the, the, the comic itself is beautiful, but like with the black and white, you can make out every little detail it, and everything in the yeah. back. Every it almost little, looks better in black, black and white. Oh, it I, does, I think it definitely yeah. looks better in yeah. black and white. It's and you know. as far as Jones go, his model looks a lot better once he's in the hat leather jacket. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. You know? Well, let's, let's uh, when face he's it. In his suit, yeah, when he's in his suit, he's very Ken doll, as the I co- said. The costume makes, that's 50% of who he is the leather jacket the yeah. fedora the whip the the gloves you know so that yeah that and it and i don't want to make you think that this draw takes me out of it i think it's fine uh in fact i think if they try too hard to replicate a face that takes me out um but i it's think like this gary is, frank doing superman yeah well yeah so doing real, real quick for the benefit of your listeners what chris is talking about the black and white is um in the uk uh, Marvel had their own imprint over there for a lot of their magazines and they were doing um, a regular weekly Star Wars magazine and, and uh, these were true like magazine size as opposed to comic book size and in issues 167, 168 and 169 of Star Wars UK they reprinted um, what here in the United States were the first two issues, the two burn issues of the further adventures of Indiana Jones. So they're in there serialized a little bit differently because they're spread out over three issues, but they're magazine size and they're black and white and they're beautiful. Um, they are. I, I provided the guys with scans, but I actually have these three issues as actual paper, uh-huh. is, you know, the original paper issues myself. And uh, and yeah, they're fantastic. I mean, really, really beautiful stuff. They really pop in black and white. They look great. I don't have these. I have I, quite a few of the UK Star Wars, and they're just wonderful to see the art in black and white and in the larger for little larger format. I mean, I know that uh, you know there's that Marvel imprint that's out there, the the Essentials, but I don't think they ever did an Essentials for Indiana Jones. I don't, I don't I, think to, so. To the best of my knowledge, the only time that this stuff ever got reprinted was Dark Horse did a couple of Omnibuy that mm-hmm. I think reprints all this stuff. Yeah. But of course, that that's actually in a reduced size, mm-hmm. not an enlarged size. It's not the artist uh, edition, it, or is it just an Omnibus? Um, yeah, I think just the, I, I could be wrong. Maybe there, maybe there's another printing out there that I'm not aware of, but just off the top of my head, that's the only one that I'm aware of where, where these got, um, got reprinted was in the star course, uh, omnibus. I'm going here to Mike's amazing world real quick to see what he has. Yeah. He doesn't have any reprints listed on his site, but I, I do know that they were reprinted at least that one time by, um, by Dark Horse. I'd love to know yeah. what the uh, Zipatone budget was for this issue because it yeah. is all <laughs> over the place. <laughs> yes. The child a lot board, of it. The, ske- the skirt, and I mean, yeah, Indy's coat is a sport jacket or whatever sport you want to call that. everywhere, yeah. It's... And, you know, I'm, I'm really wondering if George Lucas read this because it seems like he may have actually taken a couple pieces out of this for Last Crusade. And uh, but we can finish the second second book before we talk about that. It wouldn't surprise me only because Chris and I noticed that there's an awful lot of stuff that a later writer, uh, David Michelinie, wrote Uh during the series that ended up getting used in the films. 
But oh. Michelini is kind of the master of that because he did the same thing with Star Wars. He wrote Star Wars in the in-between period between The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi yeah. and hit on a number of things yep. that eventually would wind up in Return of the Jedi to a point where there were several times he got his hand slapped by Marvel saying, ah, 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 you can't do this, yep. <laughs> cluing him in that he had just hit upon something that they were going to do in the movie. He seemed to be a master of that, and he did the same thing with Indiana Jones. There, there were a good number of things that he did that would wind up in future indie movies. So, well, did he wind out? up? I know he takes he takes over after the fourth issue, I think, because I think O'Neill writes the second one and the third. Michelini uh, mm -hmm. writes kind of a bulk of this, doesn't he? Yeah. When Gamble comes I, in and is the artist? I, I want to say, yeah, I, I it's been a while since I've looked. Let me see. I'm looking real quick at... Uh, at Dave McClaney and Ron Friends are issue four. Yeah. Uh, Gary Gamble comes out at one point. issues four through 27. So, yeah, that's the bulk of the that's series pretty right much there. Most yeah. Of it. yeah. Um, and while the art, the art is wildly inconsistent through the series, which... I suspect is why it eventually didn't last all that long. Um, that cause the art really peters out by the end of the series. But that said, it does have some other really good artists. I mean, Ron yeah. friends, you mentioned, um, yeah. Carrie um, Gamble. Carrie Gamble, uh, Carrie does Gamble, a bunch. Yeah, Carrie Gamble is, you know, to me, Carrie Gamble is kind of like discount John Byrne. I mean, he's a really good yeah. artist that looks a lot like John Byrne in those issues feel like burn issues even though he has nothing to do with with them at all but yeah. just art wise they really feel like you know like a burn issue um howard chaikin although those issues i didn't think were all that great um steve ditko yeah the last bunch of issues yeah those are the ones and i know i'm probably going to get slapped for this because i know that he ha really has his rabid fans but i think those were really really uh, well, art-wise, really weak issues, and I, think I don't know if Steve Ditko is firing on all cylinders either. As well, an artist, yeah. at that the point. thing is, is that it, 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 what I find really interesting is Danny Danny Bielanotti did the inks on it, and uh, as far as inkers go, I think this, he's the first inker to take so much liberty with Ditko's work. I, I, it, it, what I always knew is like even Byrne when he did that Avengers Annual. Uh, and any other inker, they would not embellish. They would stick straight to what the pencils were and ink that. And Bulanati actually came in and, you know, finished every frame. And, and you can see Ditko's line in there, but it really, you can see Bulanati's work on, in there as well. I'm familiar with his work from uh, his ink and David Mazzuccelli on Daredevil. Yeah. So I can see, see it bleeding through there. Yeah. And he just really, you know, did... He, he did a lot to the art. So, I mean, you can see a little bit of Ditko, but it's a lot of Bulanati. Yeah. Well, do I, I move on to issue two? Oh, uh, go ahead, Chris. Just before you go, I felt the tower in this visually looked yeah. a lot like the to the Aztec. I don't know if it was Aztec, but the Central American style tower in the Crystal Skull movie. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Around it and stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought the same thing. It's it's like a cross between that and the and the mon one of the monitors antennas from Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Explain to me something though. Okay, you got this guy Solomon Black, and Indy's broken the door down. He's in this chamber with this guy, and there's all this gold and jewelry and bowls and pots and all this stuff there, and it's really glittering in the in the flame, the light of the the torches there. 
Why does he need more gold? I, Why do they ever I don't, need more gold? I don't gold? think he's after Why the gold. Why does need more gold? <laughs> I mean, that, that's enough gold to set up anybody for forever. It's just, like, crazy. He's pathological. But he's he's yeah. just another kingpin kind of guy. He reminds me of, um, I'm trying to remember which Bond movie it was. What was the character? Katanga? Katanga. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mr. Big? I, I hear James Earl Jones speaking this guy's voice. Yes, yes. He's like James Earl Jones, Katanga, and... and um, well, he's a Sydney Greenstreet for sure. Yeah, Sydney Greenstreet. That is exactly the name I was trying to think of. Yeah, all sort of mixed in with one. You could almost hear his delivery and his... his, yeah. his you know, he, you know he had a James Earl Jones voice for sure. Yeah. He's he's a decent villain for what he was, what he was used for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I mean, gonna... he's in broad strokes, but they're perfect. I mean, it's an Indiana Jones; they're just going to be there long enough to. And of course, the island. I mean, I'm surprised King Kong didn't show up. You know, <laughs> all the ships that. wrecked on the coast, and the, the, nice. the, the island in the clouds. You know, that'd be a nice crossover, <laughs> Indy yeah. and King Kong. Um, yes. Yeah. Why has anyone done this? <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Island of the Skull. That's right. George? <laughs> well, George ain't calling the like, shots anymore, so. Yeah, it's out of his well, that's hands right. now. It's, uh, it's uh, Catherine, Kasdan's okay, son. Catherine Kennedy. Is writing, yeah. But Kasdan's son is writing the, the, the last movie, isn't he? The one they're working on right now? Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I'll go see it, but out of morbid curiosity but jesus i bet you they're going to surprise you with some pretty cool stuff though I, I i'm sure that it's not going to live up to anybody's expectations it indiana just jones and the poorly oiled walker <laughs> hey star trek 6 was a good movie even though it could have been titled so very old you know? yeah but they weren't in their 80s it'd be like doing i was just gonna like... say none of them were 90 you know <laughs> it'd be like doing star trek with was. shatner now McCoy actually shatner pike gets around better than uh, Harrison Ford does it at 81 or yeah. 2 or however old he is. I mean, he went to like, space, swear, for Christ's they need, sake. They need to put a pump in, like, Harrison Ford's lungs <laughs> just to get some air in there to, so he can project nowadays because he's just... <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, uh, this this town they get to at Chapter 4 is... It doesn't look like uh, Incan, Aztec, or any of that type design, does it? It almost looks no. Swiss. It looks like a like a mishmash of like several different yeah it, it looks like it's got it looks like it's got a little as it looks like maybe like Swiss colonists like moved in and built it on top of yeah. the, the the native village except or you the, can the see old Robert Genero from the mission coming out of one of those. <laughs> Yeah, and for all, for all we yeah. know, these these old codgers here could be like eighty year old, you know, Dutch missionaries that that found their way there and just adopted the the ways of the natives and totally misinterpreted it to mean that they're supposed to dunk people in gold, you know. So yeah, yeah, there's definitely a story there. I don't know how far John Byrne like thought it out and like did so. Like I don't know if. Like at the beginning when you're like, I hope I get the pronunciation of the icons right. It's like, well, they probably just made them up anyway. So is that right? I I don't know. I don't I doubt they're a thing that really ever existed or, you know, even mythologically. It's probably just something that sounded good to John Byrne. So if you asked him now, he probably would have no idea how he 
sounded in his the, head. The ink and tap kind of a, a rat, bad yeah. rap for dunking people or, you know, gelding people anyway, so. Yeah. Kind of yeah, yeah. On, the, on the page where they're looking at the seven statues and then they show the last panels, Jones and the girl looking at one of them up close. That's definitely Byrne doing more detail on the statue itself than Terry Austin. Like he must have, you know, been very, very detailed on that part of the, the uh, art where the rest of it was a little bit less, you know, right. Detail. Right. You can just tell that just the, the second stuff he likes to draw. Yeah. The second <laughs> yeah. issue we're going to talk about. Yep. 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 And uh, now, when you were reading this, were you surprised by any of the little twists? In this case, when 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 he pulled the statue down and the bones fell out, did that catch you off guard, or were you just like, "Yep, that's about right"? I think I was originally, because this was pre-Temple of Doom. After Temple right. of Doom, definitely you would have thought they would have taken the dunk, but yeah. uh, I don't. I don't remember. It was so long ago. I mean, I definitely wasn't surprised this time reading about it, <laughs> reading it. <laughs> yeah, and, and this this book is actually, the, the funny thing in all this is Byrne was complaining about Jim Shooter, and Jim Shooter didn't want any of the books to be to have cliffhangers to the next one. He wanted them to be one-and-done stories. And he said, if you're going to do a cliffhanger, just do a cliffhanger from one page to the next. And yet he was still able to do a cliffhanger from the end of the story to the beginning of the next next issue. Then being put into the uh, well i mean let's face gold. it indiana jones the whole film is based on the old republic, republic serials. serials and those were nothing yeah, yeah. but cliffhangers yeah. so i yeah, mean just the nature of a comic yeah. it begs it begs you to do it like yeah. that you know and you might as well do it a cliffhanger a cliffhanger oh. and when it resolves it leads into the next one you know you yep. might as you might as well yeah. you know just to where Indiana Jones is getting constantly beaten down, <laughs> never time to rest, and the only time you know he has an occasional semester to rest, uh, rest up and enough to sleep with some coeds, and until he gets beaten for <laughs> six, six to eight months. <laughs> Can you imagine uh, the amount of the amount of incompletes he's got? You know, you're taking his class, he disappears because he's got off on a mission. Yep. Like, well, I guess I got to take this again next month. Or next semester. Now, I like the the last page where you see them being dumped down into it. And I'm pulling it up on the black and white right now. Oh, but that's an issue two, isn't it? Because they broke yes. it up over three issues of that instead of it's being... It's in the second yeah, one. Yeah. Two issues. yeah. But um, the in the colored version, the lighting of <clears> that last page is, is really cool. And you don't get such of a feel of it in the black and white copy, I'd say. The color version, you get from Indy's jacket, you can see, uh, you know, just the, the, the changes in the color, like maybe that's from the gold beneath is a suggestion in the black and white, but then the color version, you know, it, that's the glow from the, from the molten gold. Well, um, you can, this is also very Spielbergy. You can yeah. see that cut from them lower. You can see how they would cut it lowering and maybe probably then a shot of the gold and then a shot of the icons there. With probably the the you know the the light shimmering behind them eerily, and you can hear the the John Williams music going yeah. to a crescendo. Dun, oh, you certainly, you certainly can. This yeah. would be this would be a map room moment in John Williams music. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, any any last thoughts before we go to the second book? Because I think, of course, that will close up the story and give us more to talk about in it. I'm ready for it. Tim. All right. <clears throat> 
I've done the heavy lifting for this one. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. Issue two. Uh, Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, issue two. Uh, this is a writer, and this is not John Byrne. This is Missouri O'Neill, a.k.a. Denny O'Neill. Our artist is John Byrne, and as Brian has uh, already alluded to, that he did kind of just layouts, and then the finished artist is Terry Austin, who is our anchor. Our colorist is Bob Sharon. Our letterist is Janice Chang. Uh, the cover art is John Byrne and Al Milgram. Our editor is Louise Simonson, and our editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter. you got to uh, read these, the ones they put in the book, though. That's so cute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, our cover date is February 1983, with an on-sale date of November 2nd, 1982. Cost 60 cents, 32 pages, 22, of course, are story. Uh, other burn work uh, he worked on same month was FF251, Into the Negative Zone. Uh, Marvel Superheroes number 394, which reprints X-Men uh, 137 Part 2. And I couldn't get a lot of information on this, but Fantico or Fantico Chronicles series annual number one. I think either he had artwork or there was an interview in there with him. I can't find any information on it, but it's a kind of like a fan book. And I think they did interviews with comic creators. Huh. So I was I wasn't aware of that one either. Yeah. Which one is that again? Say it one more time. It's it's Fantico, Fan, Chronicle Fantico series. Chronicles series annual number one. It it does look like it's a a um like a comic book magazine towards different things like they did an issue yeah. highlighting the Avengers articles, interviews, complete checklists, illustrations, satire, and history. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking so, to see if I had the the one that you're talking about and I don't. I have a bunch of the Fanico's Chronicles, but I don't have that particular one. Interesting. I never yeah. heard of it until it showed up. They got it from Mike's Amazing World. But, all right. Hmm. Further Adventures of Indiana Jones number 2. The t uh, story is entitled 22 Carat Doom. We open in the bowels of an African temple. The air is thick with heat and the caustic odor of molten metal. Our two adventurers, Dr. Indiana Jones and his female companion, Edith Dunn, are suspended from a chain, slowly lowering into a pit of liquid gold. Indiana has a bad feeling about this. Our duo needs a miracle, and one comes in the form of high explosives detonating outside the temple. The natives leave to investigate as the temple trembles and shakes. Indy takes the advantage and begins to swing the chain. He then kicks the release level lever, and the chain lets loose as the two swing over to the side and land with a thug. They escape only to run into Solomon Black and his thugs, the bad guy from last issue. A poison dart to one thug prevents their murder, and Black and Indy decide to join forces against the natives. Bullets fly as the group heads to the beach, and the natives drop like flies under the atomic fire. Excuse me, automatic fire. <laughs> they retreat, and Solomon Black goes back to threatening our professor and Edith. Black has the golden icon statues he, he was after, but Indy bargains for his life by explaining only he can translate the markings on the statue to another stash of golden statues. Solomon agrees, and the group sets sail. Two hours later, our couple are resting in their cabin, and Indy admits to Edith he made up the translation part to buy time. She offers to lure the, the guard guarding their door into the cabin, hoping Dr. Jones can knock him out and make it to the radio room. Plan works, and he starts to send an SOS when the radio is shattered from a bullet. Edith is grabbed from her cabin and taken on deck with Indy. Solomon Black is fed up with the two, and he orders them to walk the plank. But Indy's signal was intercepted by a Nazi U-boat, 
and one torpedo later, the two manage to jump ship just as the weapon hits its target and the boat sinks below the waves. <clears throat> Andy and Edith cling to one surviving crated statue. The U-boat pulls our waterlogged survivors from the sea, and Andy threatens to turn them into the authorities if they don't take them to America because there is no formal declaration of war between their two countries. The captain agrees, and one month later they arrive in New York. They take a boat to shore and hire a plane at Ottawa Airport. Edith is eager to get home and claim the glory for the golden icon statue. Andy uh, asks to tag along. Edith objects, but Dr. Jones feels an obligation to her and her dead brother. See last issue. While in the air, Andy tells Edith he is on to her. Like Columbo, he explains how she killed her brother. See last issue. She shot, him, uh, she shot at him, destroying the radio. Uh, he, suspected her, he suspected her from the beginning. Jerry, the pilot, and her partner in crime decides to make his entrance at that moment. He brags he stabbed her brother, not her. Edith demands Jerry kill the high and mighty Dr. Jones. Jerry gives him two options, take a bullet or take a step outside, sans parachute. Andy offers a third option. During the month on the submarine, he translated the markings on the icon statue. He explains the gold statues were used to punish the wicked, providing, providing you know the magic words, which he promptly speaks. Busta, Canal, De Hag. Crate opens and a living gold statue emerges. Bulletproof, it stalks the two evildoers. Andy sets the plane controls to take it out of the ocean. He grabs a parachute. Uh, he then withholds his luck from Edith and Jerry as he steps outside knowing it's too late to save them. Gold hands reach out and Andy hears screams of consuming terror as he plunges to earth in safety. The end. Very well done. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. Ooh. So what did you guys think all together? There's some plot holes. Mm-hmm. I mean, for one, Indy's, Indy's plan to... Uh, I mean, they're plot holes, but they're baked into this kind of story. But it's just, I find it hilarious that Indy's like, knows what's going on. And instead of having the cops waiting for him when the plane lands, he's like, I'm going to have a com- confrontation with somebody who I know is a murderer on, the, on a plane up in the air. Yeah. <laughs> so... But and, and I mean, ostensibly, I guess we he figured he was gonna sick the icon on him, but man, that gives India a lot of faith in that that even after Legend. the the whole arc thing, you know, that 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 this one is actually a working, you know, will come to life <laughs> with the magic because if he did the magic words and nothing happened, then he would have been kind of screwed. He would, you know, been. <laughs> pretty bad situation well, but as far as like you know just sort of a resolution for the story goes it works it works fine it's yep. just uh I, this this issue seems like rushed after the first one it seems like all the effort was put in the first one There's i think a, his a lot spirit of had been broken records. by this time and that he decided he wasn't <laughs> going to continue on so he just wanted to get the story done because again if he was going to continue out the series he probably would have done some way where Instead of him just coming out of the plane with the parachute, there'd be a fire below him or a, you know, battle between German forces and somebody else or who knows what. But, you know, I mean, he just he just got out of the story as soon as he could. I, you know, I I totally buy that. And I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that he just conveniently wrapped the story up, because unless it's my imagination here, I'm thinking that there's. 
a discernible difference in quality and everything between, say, look at the page where Indy and Edith grab onto the crate and they hail the German sub and are rescued. And then you turn to the next page, the next page of story where they're at Idlewild. And all of a sudden, it, it really looks like there's a change in quality. And he's basically just going, I'm just going to wrap this up. Yeah. Whereas potentially this could have gone another issue. Yeah. You know, that I, I think there was actually more potentially to this. And he just, as you say, he just wanted out. So he just wrapped the whole thing up. And I mean, it's not shoddy or anything, but I, I really do think we're seeing a, a, a slight change in quality in the last few issues of this as the story just kind of wraps up and, and he's well, done. So, so, yeah. so suddenly there's only backgrounds and, you know, in a certain percentage of shots or, or, right. or detailed backgrounds like the, the, the shot, the page you're talking about at the, is a great, I mean, even the, 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 um, the word Idlewild on the airport is just sort of like cartoony, you know, it's sort yeah. of, it looks like something out of a Disney you know, it's like, sort of com- it's like, comic like the black in the black silhouettes moving underneath it and something, you know, right. Whereas, whereas the last issue, I mean, you could see every, like when they were in a room, you could see what, how many books were on the shelves. Yeah. And, right. Uh, and this is just sort of, there's a lot of places where, you know, it isn't necessary to have a background, you know, there's, there's motion and stuff to carry it through and, and, you know motion to the page and stuff but yeah you could tell that the, the, a lot of the care and time was put into the f- first issue well it, it's also Edith's turn it seems that could easily that he found a way to end it quickly because you don't ever see her actually shoot at him he just explains later oh you, you shot at me when he was on the radio so I think this could have been a more expanded this really feels like it should be three issues yeah, um, but you know, like again, he wrote the first one outright. You know, he plotted it out, he drew it, and he scripted it. Whereas this one here, he drew it, he let, laid it out, and let Terry Austin finish it, and then he uh, he let Denny O'Neill script it all together, guess from his notes. But when you when you do that, you're also changing the way the story's going to go. And I, you know, I mean, there's a lot of places where you you see, you see that the art has dropped. A little bit and it's down burn right uh the there would have been more i wanted more backstory on these statues they just kind of gloss over that there is the, the mystical part of it you know it seems like everybody's after them because they're gold not because you can speak a couple magic words and suddenly they're this vengeful thing that comes alive uh you know how, how did the uh was there some some was it just dipping them in the gold that makes them subservient to these ancient or these um these natives do they have to do some kind of ceremony it seems like uh it also it seems like if if they're if they're created to avenge the wicked aren't isn't their creation by wicked people so wouldn't they turn on their yeah. own creators? yeah well they were probably like the <laughs> nuclear option for them they're like we're gonna get wiped out but you know what when they come in when they come in and wipe out the left rest of us are gonna walk into the Walk grandpa's yeah. going to do the chant and, and jump into the gold and be like, sorry, suckers. And that'll be that. that that's my that's my headcanon on this. 
<laughs> and it and is it me or is Edith look like she loses about thirty yeah. pounds from when you first see her to the she's not the as final. used to she's not as used her to as... adventure as Indiana Jones and didn't like bulk up on her protein bars <laughs> she didn't realize how stressful it would be and and did the natives get a skin color change between issues because in in the first issue the one you get to see close up was very dark skinned and on the cover. The ones that you see are dark skinned, but when they show these guys on this, what page two, those are very light skinned guys. It lo- looks almost like Mike Golden did the art, actually. Yeah, maybe that feeds into Scott's idea that these are these are like yeah. Dutch slave owners. That yeah, they've been a mixed race, but this is the guy that's in the same um, royal headdress from the last issue. So, right. yeah, yeah, it just could he, be a colorist issue, coloring issue though. Yeah. Although I think in both issues the colors are pretty spot on. I like. I kind of like the color. Although, like once again, without the backgrounds, the colors end up being you know having a different feel. So they'll do things like you know a two tone sunset or something like that. But in the black and white, the the lack of backgrounds stands out a little bit more than it does in in, in the actual comic. Yeah. Hmm. This one definitely had a more cartoony well, feel well, uh, to it in places. Yes, that's for sure. Well, and Indy is a little more, you know, to your point, Scott, he's a little more edgy because he is just mowing down these natives. And after he, uh, you know, he after he collapses that house and gets behind it and he's blasting him, he says, uh, that's another triumph for decency, <laughs> culture, civilization, and automatic <laughs> weapons. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, you know, I don't know man. Guy- uh, in the morning, those dinner. guys got up and they fried their eggs and they were doing their thing. Another beautiful morning on Old Man Island. <laughs> I still love it, though. I loved it then and I love it now. I, I still yeah. think it's it's really good. Oh, yeah. Yes, I agree. And I, I just wish he would have done more. Boy. Any, uh, any further thoughts? Or are we ready to, to wrap up here? I notice, uh, I just, you know, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. I notice Indy's really quick to, to, to hang out with some, some Nazis. And I, another plot hole is the Nazis would have been like, oh, well, how is anybody going to know this is, it's not like there's any internet here. We'll just, we'll just leave you in the water, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They would, they, they yeah, just, nobody, they just throw them And would a wood crate full of a giant golden artifact actually float? Only if it's watertight. If it was watertight, I don't think it would displace yes, yeah, enough water. It should. It should. Yeah. If it was watertight. Yeah. And to as we know from the first film, that Hitler is a nut on the occult. Yeah. And if these guys had any, knew that this statue had any occult aspects to it, they would have yeah. taken it right back to Hitler and thrown these two oh, yeah. drink. <laughs> this would have been instant promotion if they brought this to the Fuhrer. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Sort of made up for that whole arc debacle, debacle. Yeah, <laughs> we lost the arc. We got this thing. Well, back. where was the plane when it went down? Where did sea? Uh, I don't know. He's heading He's... out to sea. Well, where's he flying? Yeah, where are they flying from? Yeah, from Idlewild to... is what is now one of the famous airports there, like JFK or uh, or LaGuardia. One of the two of them. Yeah, LaGuardia. Oh. Yep. Um. I don't know where she's from. I don't know where she's trying to get back to. Yeah, I don't know. 
But it's it would be somewhere in the U.S., but the plane looks like it's going out to sea. Well, Indy said that he, he said it to go out there. There's there's a line here somewhere where he says, uh, he goes, I set the controls to take this kite over the Atlantic. He says, I wouldn't want whatever came out of that box to go walking around loose. Ah. So he did it on purpose. To... Well, it makes, right. But what makes him, what makes him think it's not going to just walk out on the bottom of the ocean and it's... Ten years is exactly awesome. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. gold. It's not gonna get rusty. Yeah, exactly. It's but gonna then pull again, gold is water. But then again, gold is very heavy <laughs> and very soft. It's gonna sink to the bottom of the ocean and then probably just get crushed into a little lump. So it might <laughs> like it might just be this lump full of bones rolling up on the beach or something. Because that's another that's another thing. Gold is very very soft. Yeah. So once they started shooting that thing, it should have just been like bleh, bent over and then bent over on its own weight. Like it probably should just have collapsed under its own weight. But yeah, because yeah, it seemed like when he pulled the statue off and you saw the bones, I would broke, have loved to have seen uh, seen this easily. as a movie just to see if it was made in 1983 because it would de those definitely would have been like um ray harryhausen type anim you know yeah animated stop motion. stop motion figures and they would have looked awesome like <laughs> like the seventh void ascent yeah, except, like made, except totally made of like reflective gold it would have looked really cool Dang. i just this is a little uh batman begins where he jumps out it's it's kind of I don't have. I don't. I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have yeah. to save you. So I'm just. Gonna... So you weren't. We're worried about that now. So this particular story, I mean, in the first story, we saw a couple things that they, you know, did later. What's her name meeting Indy when he got off the boat? Like Doctor, like Elsa meeting Indy and uh, Marcus in the Last Crusade, and in this one there was. Uh, um, the, uh, the the scene where the boat sinks and it reminded me of the cross of Coronado recovery at the at, you know mm -hmm. also in Last Crusade. Yeah. So again, you know, there as you guys said, there was a lot of stuff in the in the Michelini part of the series that um, seemed to wind up in the, in the movies as well. Yeah. Well, when when Edith has got her little, you know, she just happened to have a gown with her. Why she still has but her luggage? Didn't she have her room ransacked um, just like Elsa did? Yeah, unless she took it with her on their adventure. Why would she have it with her? But it, it's very reminiscent of what Marion yeah. wears when she's got that kind of skin tight little yeah. Wasn't it just thing, like, uh, hey, look what Raiders. the Nazis had? <laughs> Maybe it's the same submarine. Yeah, Maybe it's the same submarine. Maybe that was just standard issue in Nazi <laughs> submarines. Is in Could case be. you picked up a woman, they had like some slinky clothes for them. I Just, mean, did Marion wear that same outfit all the way to when they opened the Ark? I think so. I think oh, she okay. did. Yeah. yeah, she was in that, yeah. She did that and I time. guess Indy and her had to use and something you, to get back to the mainland, like a submarine again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Do you think the Nazis actually painted a swastika on all their torpedoes? <laughs> <laughs> they branded everything? That's great. Yeah, just... Uh, <laughs> It makes it very convenient. I, just, for the, I can't help, I can't help but feel, you know, that uh, that we really got cheated out of something that that could have been, you know, really an, an epic run. Because you got to remember, I mean, this this is like Burn during Burn's golden age, man. He's a year and a half into his Fantastic Four run, which is one of the greatest things he ever did. I mean, he's right. 
at this point, he's really firing on all cylinders and, and delivering some some truly classic stuff. I mean, he simultaneously with when these issues were coming out was when he was doing the Man and Superman uh, storyline in Fantastic Four, which is, I mean, that's that's iconic. I mean, it's it's just great comics, and you know this story here, you know, for all its faults and everything, and some of the silliness of the story, still stands the test of time. And it's just, you know, if he had more in him of this quality, both story and art wise, then, man, you know, we, we really got screwed out of some great stuff. And it, it's it, just such a shame. I, the other I, thing is that that and, and it's not something that's like major public knowledge is that right around this time is when he started working on Alpha Flight. Right. And when when all this was going down, he had a lot of personal stuff going on in his life uh and he was having a really really rough time personally and he says it directly affected his art and and the quality of the work that he was putting out and you'll notice a change from right in this era to uh, alpha flight comes out in what a just like six months after this i think or you know just within a few months after this um so yeah you you know that that what's what's coming is probably you know going to change and may not have been as good as you wanted. You know he was he started doing what I call his um, pencil and inking shorthand, and that was that you know he he wouldn't do the tight pencils before he'd come in and ink behind it, and he would try to add detail with with his inks, which just didn't look as good as him doing full tight pencils and then inking over it, because like his early issues of Fantastic Forever. Four had looked more like the burn and Austin stuff than his later issues of fantastic four. Now two forty nine and two fifty still had the, the beauteous look that I think that we all love to look at. But as you start getting later, like right in that negative zone or right after the negative zone, maybe right when you start looking for his father is when you start to see the change in the way his pencils, but then he started bringing in anchors on fantastic four and brought Bob Wyacek in to ink Alpha Flight, so you couldn't tell as much what was going on. Yeah. Well, so he's, that's about the time in FF where he started changing yeah. his background. He started using more mm-hmm. photo references, uh, kind of Kirby style. Using the computer uh, with the, that, the pictures of the landscapes and the buildings. Yeah, doing kind of a like a posit, uh, uh, posturize effect, kind of, and then coloring that. Um, but this I think would make would have made a great because uh, this is right at that time when they were doing those big prestige graphic novels. If you made this, yes, uh, like a yeah. square bound, yeah, extra paper graphic novel, just like oh, paper, yeah, this would be that beautiful. would have been a great Thank idea. You. Like I, I just sort of wish like Lucasfilm could have seen into the future of like media and stuff because like I think. Also, with all the stuff you were saying on top of it with, you know, being really busy, stuff happening in his life. If you had a title like Indiana Jones where he'd been working at Marvel, so he knows. So he probably saw how the people, you know, what was going on with with Star Wars and with this where you had to sort of battle over your stories and change things to the last minute and stuff. And it's like if you got something like Alpha Flight, which you can just sort of create and do, you know, you're going to have a certain amount of that, too, in, you know, in inside of Marvel. But, you know, I wish Lucasfilm would have understood that, like, they could have just let John Byrne go with India. Just let him go, you know, and if it hits some stuff that ends up in the movies someday, the the 
number of comic readers compared to the people who go to see Indiana Jones movies would have been would have been you know negligible how many people would have got quote unquote spoiled and the comics readers would have been overjoyed to see something yeah. from the comic show up in the movies so that or you know or so, or a story that was similar to like the the comics or maybe Lucasfilm was afraid that they'd have to pay somebody too if they did that so there might have been that element to it too but it just sounds like a big pain in the ass to do those licensed right. things when the when the licensees are very hands-on with the stories and stuff it seems like that would be hell it would be almost be like look why don't you guys write it <laughs> you know and we'll just draw we'll just yeah. draw it up for you you know yeah i remember Burm was talking about when he did the aliens earth angel story and he basically broke every rule that uh, that was laid out before him on what you're what you're not supposed to do in those books for alien just to see what would happen and they didn't care they loved the story so much they printed it as is yeah great you know and and look the the world didn't end it's there yeah. it's out there and you can enjoy it you know so it's and then when he started doing star trek at idw he had chris Rael or, or they're working with him and I mean, they, they just it just basically it looked like that Chris Harrell was able to tell him, just do what you want to do. Yeah. You know, and we'll deal with it. But I don't think that Paramount or whoever at this point owns the Star Trek franchise was going to sit there and say to them, now, nah, don't do it. Because, you know, they've they've gotten so many different iterations of Star Trek. They, I don't think yeah. they can keep track of it all. No, no. And no, neither can people who neither like only the most insanely you know dedicated of fans can keep up with that stuff because it's star trek has had so long and such a history of expand you know it's as far as expanded universe type stuff goes and nobody know, cares what richard arnold says you can't you i mean somebody i mean i the i i mean there's got to be a few people out there who've read every star trek fiction novel that's come out you know mm -hmm. ever but man oh man there's a lot of them and they go in a lot of them go in goofy ass directions and yeah. same with the comics and stuff and i i think that's just fine it just it's just part of the nature of those the the storytelling aspect of it and i don't think people get too too wound up with it because you can just like especially when there's a million stories you can just sort of shove the ones that don't get it right off to the side and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like your head cannon you know my 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 gateway to uh two two freaks was star trek monthly monday you guys did and i remember you covering the star trek comics because i <laughs> remember you guys talking about uh uh what was the the klingon's name Kelvin, oh, right. like klingon. conan <laughs> or, or, or whatever his name was what's <laughs> my klingon <laughs> all right <laughs> Yeah, which and led then, the way and, to and war. On, so hey, that, I believe it was in that same run. There was also like that, like super racist, redheaded Irish guy, right? Yes, it was in was that too. That was just like an anomalous start. They just had this like, all of a sudden, this guy on the ship just started like spouting racism, and it was like, what? <laughs> no good Klingon <laughs> scum. Was that Ensign Bearclaw? <laughs> Bearclaw, yes. Bearclaw. No, that, he was yeah, an Indian. No, the Beer Claw was a racist, too. There was an Irish guy, too. Maybe I'm getting it mixed up because I think it is Bear Claw. Yes, who is, who is like, also a stereotype Native American. Like, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, that was a goofy, go some Named Star Trek goofiness. 
and you know, and Star Trek survived yeah. that. <laughs> well, well, Mike, Mike W. Well, Barr, I'm married to an, an Irish woman, and I can Mike tell you w. they're all Barr racist. Is a Star Trek writer, especially in those first issues. <laughs> no, I just I can't. I think I can't. he had a lot of the, the main characters' voices down really well. You know, in, in those first few issues, Mike W. Barr. And so he kept throwing in his own things at Bear Claw and Konam and then whatever her, the girl's name was that Konam was macking on all the time. That's so, right. And that's the one well, That's the one series I don't have. That sucks. All right. That, I've no, got them digitally. Yeah, I don't have I've them got them on a disc. One, one, one series I don't have digitally. But uh, I've got the Marvel one, of course, and the movies and Spock Reflections and all the new visions, of course. Have you guys been reading new visions? I have not. Yeah, you have. It's the burn stuff. Oh, the, 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 the new visions. Yes. As a matter of fact, I got to, I, I, I'm like, I lack one issue of that, that I have to go out and get to keep myself complete on those. I love those. They brought back okay. Harry Mudd and I loved it. Yeah. And, and though what they had to do to, was, you know, the Chris well, there's no likeness rights available for Roger Carmel. Um, he died in 85 and that was before they did any kind of likeness rights in contracts. He has no heirs. So I don't understand why they can't use his likeness maybe because there's nobody out there to. that yeah, wants. Maybe, maybe he just didn't feel right about doing it or whatever, but no, he, he could, <laughs> like he he could not it. get the rights to, to, to his likeness. Otherwise he would have used them. And so he did what he did, which I thought was brilliant. It was hilarious. Is yeah. All I got to say is it, it was the kind of thing. It would have been a really stupid episode, but it would have been an episode that Scott, you and I would have loved because it basically Harry Mudd takes over Kirk's body, basically gets transformed into Kirk. Oh, and uh, so then you would have got to have Shatner acting as Harry Mudd and it would have been, it would have oh, been ridiculous. <laughs> and and burn knows that you know so i mean that's the thing is it could have been really it is it is really stupid but he has burns knows what he knows that it's he knows what it is and treats it as such that's that's what i love about those is they don't really play out exactly like a tv episode he doesn't have the beats of it but he just has the idea of it you know down and it's amazing the voice the of, is there. The voice is perfect in there on the characters. Yes. Whenever, I mean, obviously you've got a picture of right Star Trek it is. Yeah. But, um, well, no, I mean, there's a lot of writers out there that, that just don't know. I've never been able to read a Michael Jen Friedman story or Judith and Garfield Reef Stevens story and hear those characters' voices. But like Diane Duane, Peter David, when I read their writings in of the characters whether they're original series or next gen they've got the voices down pat and burns got the the original series characters voices down pat so it's, i mean it's it's not everybody no no that's what i'm saying everything that burns ever done yeah it's been star trek has been spot so, on so or now of course he's been talking with idw uh, and it looks like he may be doing some star some more fumetti uh and he may do it like a movie type thing. So it'd be like an expanded edition. I don't know that he would do it in the movie. Um, you're using the movies for Fumetti because you just don't have that much to go with. Whereas with uh, the, 60, the 69 episodes, 
he had enough that he could sit there and pull because he basically has scans of every single frame of every episode. Like like going from artwork, which is very time consuming Mm -hmm. to that. As someone who's done Photoshop before, the, the, the legwork on that, just for every page of that, is unbelievable. Not just putting it together. Putting it together is, like, logistically, like, blows my mind. Like, but the manipulation put, that you have the to manipulation do. manipulation to, to do, but, yeah. but then to do that manipulation, you have to go, you have to know what you need and then go through frames to find, you know... Shatner at that angle, you know. He says he has kind of an encyclopedic I'll bet you by now memory. He really does. Of, and he just does exactly where to go, what episode, where to where to grab it, and I, I'm sure his Still, that, that stuff he must takes have time. It just must take forever to do one of those yeah. things, and and yeah. Well, I'm sure with Photoshop, he's probably saved. He's probably saved certain effects. Oh, sure. He apply templates and he's, and he's got, he's got uh, files, folders full of, you know, Kirk's, you know, and, you know, make it, you know, Kirk, he probably has names for every single configuration of outfits that all the characters wear so he can keep them in consistent outfits or he can always put someone's yeah. head on another outfit. And... Yeah, he does that a lot. Or he'll, he's got, I'm sure he's got uh, mats mm-hmm. so he can change uh, colors of costumes mm-hmm. that already have that built in. But I'm sure his... Each one of those is, must have probably 20 yeah, levels it, to it or 20 layers to but it. But being made up of all the, you know, by being limited also by like the camera angles that they used the, in the standard set setups and stuff, it ends up looking like an episode of Star Trek. So it's it's great. Yeah, that's what helps it. It does help yep. it, yeah. Well, well, hope he gets back to it. Yeah. Those are those are uh, great. Any last words on in the further adventures of Indiana Jones? Yeah, it's definitely worth seeking out and reading. No. Yeah, it is. This is the first, my first time to read them. I had never read these before. I sat down yeah. Friday or Thursday and read them. I I've, I've been collecting them over the years when I find them on the cheap, but I uh, I I'd had I did not have a good experience. My experience was that usually with movie adaptions they weren't very good, so I kind of stayed away from them. So that's why this was not on my radar when I was collecting, uh, and it wasn't until and I didn't know Burn that did the first two issues. So. Uh, this is all brand new. I, I, I followed the series for, I know I kept buying them for a couple of years, but I know I, I like lost steam as soon as John Byrne was not attached to it. And then like I was sticking with it, but like it, it, towards the end when the art just started, when everything just started breaking down, I was just like, that was probably around the time I was like going off to college and stuff too. So yeah. Yep. All righty. Well, um, gosh, guys, I really appreciate you guys coming. You know, we this is something that we have talked about for years, getting you guys on and talking about these two issues. And I'm so glad, you know, obviously we've talked about quite a lot. We've gone all over the place, not just uh, Indiana Jones, but uh, in, in other areas. Obviously, we spent a lot of time talking about Star Trek. But I'm, I'm just so pleased that we were able to do it. And I know that there are plenty of subjects that we could bring you in on in the future. And I, I would like to get you guys on to talk about some uh, Star Trek new visions. I'd really be into that. I'll, I'll, I'll I want to, I'll go uh, poke through them. Cause I, I remember there's a couple of them that I really, really like Scott. Would you be up for that? Uh, yeah, I, I yeah, <laughs> I guess I would. I, I tried them cause, cause Chris kept recommending them to me. I, they weren't really my cup of tea. I don't really like the whole Fumetti thing, but yeah, I'd be willing to, to try them. 
discuss it. Excellent. Well, we'll, we'll make plans down the road. Let's just, you know, not make it take six years. I'm a big sucker for I'm a big sucker for Fumetti's. I love 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 them. Excellent, Tim. You have any last things to say? Last thoughts? Uh, we don't have any new emails or. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, well, not not in the book. I I, I do. I want to thank uh, Chris and um, Scott for coming on. It's always it's always a pleasure to have Scott on. He's been on a couple times with us, back to the band, and some other shows. And I think this is the first time. I've recorded with you, Chris, if you might have been on one of our movie reviews at one point where we talked about the FF movie or something, I think, but uh, uh, I have not. Yeah, well, it probably wasn't that often, movie because so. I've never seen any of the Fantastic Fours except for <laughs> we, the we, Corman one. We did one. the show oh. before the movie came out. Um, oh. it, was actually, it was actually a show we did. Um, we were lucky enough to get uh, Andy Leyland on it and Sean Engel. Yeah, Sean Engel was on it. Andy just kind of crashed it. Yeah, Andy well, just kind of crashed the show. <laughs> so we hadn't even seen the movie. It was coming out a week later, and it was, I, I, and I said back then the title of the episode should have been "What the F for," because we really didn't want this movie to come out, <laughs> and and our, our our thoughts and feelings on that were justified. Uh, but yeah. um, no, but again, you know. It, it, for anybody that's not aware, this show right here would not have been possible without Scott and Chris because they're the ones that uh, let us come onto the network and and start Third Degree Burn in the first place. In fact, Scott Gardner is the one that came up with the name Third Degree Burn. So so uh, he'll right. have that. I mean, that's kind of like the B Sharps on The Simpsons. It's that iconic. It's kind of <laughs> funny, but it gets less funny every time you say it. And yet there it is. Scott's still waiting yep. for those royalty checks. Um, we'll get Dufo to send a, a voucher. <laughs> anyway, if you'd like to let us know what you think about this episode or any episode uh, for that matter, please write us at gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes. Or you can leave us a note in our Facebook group. This is, you know, we... we you know, push push out our uh, meeting notes every time we uh, meeting notes, but uh, episode notes every time we put out an episode, and of course we spam every Facebook group that's related to John Byrne whenever we do it. So leave us a note somewhere. If we find it, like it, we'll read it out on the uh, on the air. Um, I think that's everything we've got. We don't have any any great plans for uh, the next few weeks and months. We're, I'm sure we'll be covering some more X Men elsewhere. Uh, which has got some really interesting, crazy stuff going on right now. Um, the the new origin of Wolverine, um, a reappearance of some form of Phoenix, and um, there's a third storyline going on, uh, I think, with one of the back characters and the Sentinels. But uh, we'll see how far that goes down the road. And then uh, one of the things that we've talked about that we want to do this next year is that we're going to alternate shows and we'll be doing some George Perez coverage. So uh, just, uh, you know, keep us in mind. Look down the road for Third Degree Burn. For uh, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, thanks, guys. Can't wait to have you on again. It was great. It's been so long since I've been a guest on a show. It's uh, <laughs> always fun. I'm always... going to put you to work. Oh, Takes yeah, the pressure yeah, off, yeah, I know it? I'm not editing this. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel free to just talk and talk and talk. <laughs> and well, our, our our shows are usually about two to three hours anyway. Yeah, so. we talk a lot, and we don't edit out much. 
but uh, Tim gets to edit this one, right? Is that right, almost, Tim? That's almost the. No. That's almost. Yeah, that's could almost be the two true yeah, freaks catchphrase. <laughs> All righty. Well, uh, Tim, you want to take us out? Sure. Uh, well, for Third Degree Burn, uh, I am Tim Elliott. And again, once again, we'd like to thank Scott and uh, Chris for coming on. It's always a pleasure. Uh, my partner in crime, I'd like to thank Brian, who's been hanging around all this time and putting up with me. And I'd like to thank everybody for, if you've made it this far, for listening to this show and for listening to any show we put out. All right. Thanks. So thank you. Good night. Goodbye. I'm going to shut up now. I'd like to thank all the little people I had to step on to get here. <laughs> Still got a heel mark on my shoulder. <laughs> Willie, Willie. What is that? Is that short for something? Willie is my professional name. Indiana. Hey, lady, you call him Dr. Jones. My professional name. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.